0: Good evening, everyone, whoever everyone is, and wherever you are. Uh, This is Dr. Simon, and this is the third in a series uh, on what I call psychotherapy, in which therapy is a, uh, in quotes, and it is my attempt uh, to... uh, introduce a set of ideas that are really, uh, in many ways, the diametric opposite of the ideas that now dominate what is called the mental health field, which I call the mental health industry, um, and and to point out, uh, which I've done over and over in many ways, uh, how deficient and uh, duplicitous and how empty uh, the attempt to take human suffering and human foible, and turn it into pseudo-medical illnesses, uh, is, and then to replace it with another story, if you will, uh, a story that um, exists in many therapy rooms, in many classrooms, um, but increasingly never gets put into words. Uh, it, 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 it's buried, if you will, um, under this barrage that comes out of uh, the, the, the DSMs, uh, which are more and more being uh, slotted and fitted with uh, the uh, domination of drug companies and the kind of drugs, uh, pseudomedicines, that supposedly uh, make you better and help you um, uh, live your life <laughs> through chemistry, as it were uh in in my first episode, I talked about the fact that um one of its deficiencies is that uh it only talks about mental illness and it's impossible for under those circumstances for it to talk about what is mental health um it, It's interesting there's a hypocrisy here, a really great hypocrisy that um, no no clinic or mental hospital uh, is called a mental illness uh, clinic. They're all mental health uh, clinics or mental health hospitals or mental health programs. They never define health. Uh, What happens when you go there is you're diagnosed as having an illness, and increasingly you're going to be diagnosed for it to be paid for by insurance companies uh, that are health insurance companies. Uh, but do very little to promote health. So health is really not the issue. It's illness that's the issue. And theoretically, then, if you're not ill, you're healthy. But to not be ill is is not necessarily to be healthy. Again, I spoke about this in physical terms earlier. Uh, Look at a prime athlete. Look at somebody who's robust and full of energy. Uh, That's healthy. The fact that the doctor can find nothing wrong with us when we go for our physical doesn't mean that the absence of illness uh, is is, uh, anything descriptive, uh, except in negative terms, uh, there's nothing positive that ever gets described. Um, So psychologically especially, there are no uh, definitions, if you will, of of, uh, current definitions, of of uh, mental health, uh, I suggested in my show two shows ago that mental health can be seen as a um, in positive terms as living a good life, uh, uh, as experiencing a life in which uh, your needs are satisfied, uh, and and uh, those needs include uh, being loved, uh, living with dignity. Uh, experiencing yourself uh, as a creative individual. Uh, so much is missing from this model, this, what I call the medical model, uh, and so much of it involves not seeing a human being as an active agent on the, in their own behalf. It is true, using my metaphor of life as a story that we live in, that our stories are given to us that we're characters in other people's stories. But any notion I have of maturity uh, means that at one point or another, we take over the construction of our own story. We set the goals. Uh, We struggle to reconcile our past with our future. We struggle to create new relationships that may be, very different from relationships uh, that can be seen earlier in our lives or in other areas of our lives as harmful and as holding us back and are producing, in some ways, the suffering that ends up being called mental illness or mental disorders. All of this is missing. Uh, last week I talked about, and not deeply enough I, 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 as I think about the show, uh, what's missing from this medical model, our stages, growth, the way in which we are transformed by our interaction with the environment, uh, by the kind of support we get from people who care about us and love us, teachers and parents, uh, and those who are concerned, not with our deficits, but with helping us achieve, uh, helping us set our goals for ourselves, and as I said last week, develop those critically important skills that allow us to live a good life, that allow us to negotiate uh, social difficulties, form productive, uh, effective, loving relationships, uh, to create something that is unique to our own vision of the world that is both positive um, and that reflects hard work uh, and, and adds Uh, to the positive dimensions of the lives of those around us, missing, absolutely missing from this dreadfully uh, impoverished model of either you're mentally ill or you're not mentally ill, with all the hypocrisy uh, attending it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about more development, uh, some issues before I get on to the issue of morality, which is the central function of today's show and by the way if you want to call in the guest call in number is 646-716-7756 that's Um, 646-716-7756 and any call would be welcome um when we grow certain things uh Piaget I used piaget's ideas last week. There could be many other theories I could add to it uh, but uh he's sort of uh, uh intellectual hero uh in my thinking uh, our stories change our perceptions change as we mature, and I pointed out last week that we mature in those areas where we assimilate and accommodate or that is. We attempt to solve the problems necessary upon satisfying variety of needs, making ourselves safe, uh, uh, earning a living, forming relationships, uh, learning to read, learning to write, uh, the almost infinite number of skills that we can and often do uh, develop. Um, and, and as we become more successful and adept. Uh, at developing these skills, we become better adapted to our life. To the degree that we don't learn these skills in areas that are critical, social and physical, uh, uh, intellectual, we're going to end up being diagnosed by the current system uh, as mentally ill or mentally disordered when, in fact, what we're looking at are uh, adaptations the, the mode of our living in terms of our, how we solve problems and satisfy our needs that are considered by us and or the world around us as deficient. So what we're always describing is some level and style and type of adaptation uh, and the way in which we go about living our lives and creating our story. And again... I don't. I, I do make judgments about these modes and 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 various ways of living, but I recognize that my judgment is not a medical judgment unless it can be demonstrated that the way a person is living, uh, the things that uh, are deficient, uh, in their view and in in, in their families and societies. Um, can be uh, completely or or dominantly explained as a biological issue. Uh, And we know that um, that doesn't exist. The the great Alan Francis, the creator of DSM-IV, has admitted that it's bullshit and a noble lie. Okay. Uh, For example, little children... uh, are unable to decenter their perceptions. They look at something uh, that is, is uh, some aspect of something, and that's all they perceive. What they can't do is take into account uh, a number of different issues in trying to understand what something is. So, this ability to decenter one's perception uh, and look at an object not merely from its color or not merely from its position or not merely from its size, but all of these in what we, we, uh, uh, try to gauge, uh, something, uh, uh, at, at, at understand something, uh, in a fuller way, uh, comes through maturation as we move through, uh, our early stages into our later stages. Um, uh, when I look at bigot- bigotry, uh, when I look at religious and hatred, what you see is an inability to de You see an inability to see another human being except by one quality, their religion, uh, their color, their so-called race, uh, some physical aspect of them uh, that may not appeal to people, uh, one of the hardest things, I think, to do is to learn to see a human being multifaceted, to understand, as Harry Stack Sullivan, a very fine uh, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst of the early 20th century, uh, we are all more human than otherwise, which which, in order for that to become a part of our story and how we live, requires that we don't just look at a single aspect of an individual and then make some kind of a judgment about it. Um, And this rock works, by the way, to positive judgments. Uh, Somebody does something really well. They're a sports figure uh, or they make a lot of money and we ascribe to them all kinds of other qualities about their greatness or their superiority uh, when, in fact, we don't know how they live their lives. We really don't know anything about them uh, I think that our uh the way we physically center our perception on what we call attractiveness uh is devastating for those who are not perceived as attractive uh overweight underweight, too tall too short um the discrimination against individuals, the dehumanization of individuals that results from when we label an individual based upon one single quality that we've become centered upon uh, can be devastating. When we do this to ourselves, it can be equally devastating, first on, on if it's negative negative and we see ourselves as as the worst person that's ever lived, the ugliest person that's ever been, uh, as totally unlovable, Uh, or when we become grandiose, we can do something well, and we start to treat other people contemptuously, as if uh, somehow we are innately superior to them. All of these things create tremendous uh, interpersonal difficulties, Uh, intrapersonal, intrapsychic difficulties that psychotherapy in its best form uh, tries to change with the active uh, participation of the person who has become uncomfortable or unhappy with their life. The concept of conservation is important. Uh, When I was a child, I guess first or second grade somebody came up to me and he said what weighs more a pound of feathers or a pound of iron and i immediately uh, said a pound of iron because somehow thinking that iron is inherently heavier than feathers what i wasn't doing was conserving weight a pound is a pound is a pound Uh, this takes time to conserve human beings is extremely difficult One of the things that uh, uh, one of the things that we can end up doing to each other and ourselves uh, is not to conserve. So uh, you want to be driven crazy by somebody, somebody who tells you that you're really the most wonderful, the best person in the world, until they get angry at you and then tell you you're the worst person that's ever lived, uh, that you're no good, and you should get out of their sight. We can do this to ourselves. When I look at what we call uh, bipolar disorder, uh, when we see these ups and downs in people's uh, emotion, uh, when if we can go rapidly from seeing ourselves as the best person in the world and then uh, rapidly descending to being the worst person in the world, the emotional response, the elation followed by the depression, the despair, uh, which is, with is such a core of depression, or what we call depression, um, is, is enormous. So in order to, to stabilize ourselves as the character in our story, we need to conserve in, in, in a developmental sense and recognize that we feel differently, we perceive differently, but there's something central that remains the same. We're not merely uh, constantly changing or floating up or floating down or disappearing or becoming bigger or smaller. So uh, all of these are really very important in terms of what I perceive to be the outcome of uh, a good psychotherapy, in quotes, Uh, which happens, again, all the time, but less and less uh, with anything that has to do with psychiatry, And and it's masters, uh, 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 it's puppet masters in the drug companies that have convinced so many millions of individuals, including psychotherapists, uh, that the first line of so-called treatment has got to be drugs, uh, in which, again, all of these concepts of growth, all of these concepts of so-called health, all of the uh, subtle and uh, myriad ways we experience ourselves in the world simply disappear, simply are gone. Uh, You cannot understand another human being uh, or be understood unless uh, we walk a mile in each other's shoes where we ask the question, what does it really feel like to be this person under this and that circumstance? What was it like for this individual growing up within uh, the historical story uh, in which they found themselves when they were younger? Um, Have they grown up? Have they developed skills, changes in perception? Or are they still locked in to a story and a set of skills and behaviors uh, and experiences that stem from an earlier, perhaps very, very unhappy time in their life? So, all of this is important, and how about that for an introduction to the third aspect of the show, which is really morality. Every human being, I have suggested earlier, is a scientist trying to figure out how to solve the problems related to living. Every human being. We are inherently scientists. It is true that some people develop the title through their education of being a scientist, and develop certain skills, hopefully develop certain skills to be critical, uh, to weigh evidence, uh, to uh, not rush to judgment, to live in doubt. Uh, Very hard to do, extremely difficult to do, uh, to be abstract enough to stand outside uh, their own perceptions and try to be objective in some way. Uh, but the fact that we're always trying to figure out how to live uh, and, and succeed and stay alive and solve our problems uh, and reach our goals makes us inherently a scientist. A scientist has certain functions, certain things we do. Describe, put the world around them and inside themselves, make predictions, test out the predictions. In in formal science, we call these hypotheses. We call this research and experimentation uh, to develop some kind of control over ourselves and our lives. And finally, uh, uh, describe, uh, explain, I'm sorry, uh, develop theories about life, hopefully if we're good scientists, uh, we don't make these particularly sacred stories. We keep them open for new evidence. So to describe, explain, predict, make good predictions. Uh, if I brush my teeth, is it true? Uh, I can live longer if I don't smoke. Um, uh, do I, if I cross the street, do I do this uh, at the corner waiting for a green light? Uh, all of these things possibly true that I will have better control over my life and live longer. Um, Right now in America, there is a a tremendous search for which foods and which diet uh, can increase life and health and happiness. Uh, So we're always trying to figure out uh, how things work. Um, Cross the street while there's traffic and you'll discover you know an awful lot about physics uh, and and moving bodies. Uh, you may not have the formula. Uh, we may not have the mathematics to describe these events. But anybody who can cross the street and get to the other side has a great deal of knowledge about physics. Uh, anybody who's tried to make a good egg cream or a soda or cook a decent meal knows things about chemistry. Uh, anybody who uh, tries to stay healthy knows that they're a scientific biologist, etc., etc., etc. And I think, uh, as a psychotherapist, I try to be a good scientific psychologist, one who can create uh, ideas that can help myself and people uh, without sacred stories, without uh, 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 failing to grow, and to give up bad ideas and develop good ideas. However, every one of us is also a moral philosopher. Because no matter what we see and no matter what we do, we simultaneously judge these things as good or bad, as worthy or unworthy, as right or wrong. So we are moral philosophers. The sad thing about the psychiatric model that now dominates the so-called field of mental health is that it confuses description with judgment science with morality and what in effect says that you're deficient morally in the name of being deficient medically since there is no truth to the idea that when we hallucinate or when we uh, take two hours to pick a shirt out of the closet or wash our hands 500 times uh, that these are uh, medical problems then what we're saying is we shouldn't do these things. Of course, if we ignore what's mentally healthy uh, or what we believe about mental health, we leave out saying what we should do or what we should replace those actions that we shouldn't do. So that we all have a moral system whether we recognize it or not. Now, uh, if there are psychotherapists listening, uh, they're howling, I imagine, uh, because we're not supposed to make judgments about the people we help. We're supposed to stay on a descriptive level. We're supposed to help people explain and understand their lives in a fuller way so that they can make different choices. Different carries with it no moral implications. But... It is true, I believe, that no therapist, nobody working with a patient, wants them to become a better killer. Nobody wants an individual to go from the frying pan into the fire, to give up one self-destructive pattern of behavior, or one set of actions that produce misery for themselves and others, only to take on another set of behaviors that do the same. We want people to live better and living better that statement is a moral statement it can only explain by the moral words of should and shouldn't ought and ought not I've said this before but virtually every human being who came for my help somewhere early on not say I am not unhealthy I am a good person I think I'm crazy, I'm a good person. The opposite of crazy was good. The little boy who comes to me and I say, why are you here? And he says, this is because I'm bad, knows exactly why he's there. He understands he's being told he's bad and that the behavior uh, changes that have to take place are behaviors that his parents think are good. That is, he studies more. He listens better. He does something different that pleases because it's found to be more moral than the behavior uh, that has caused him and his family so much misery. So there is no way we can avoid making moral judgments, even if we put them aside While we work, put them in the background, uh, which happens in a good psychotherapy, and we stress understanding. What was your motive for doing that? Uh, What did occur in your childhood that we can understand that shaped your present behavior? But recognizing that there is always morality implicit in all human relationships and all human interaction. As I've said earlier, We can judge something. We can describe something, but not at the same time. Uh, That was a a statement by Niels Bohr. And it's not good for psychotherapy to begin with judgment, even though at this time in our history, it's constantly a judgment that begins the relationship, even if the psychotherapist and his client, his so-called patient, Uh, make fun of it and say, we're going to ignore it. The diagnosis is a moral statement. It's a moral statement of deficiency and carries in it no moral statement of sufficiency. So, psychotherapy, education, and as I said last week, good education is therapeutic and good therapy is educational is inevitably no matter how we describe it a moral enterprise a moral enterprise I don't see any way around it we are trying to work with ourselves and others to increase goodness to increase love to increase uh, uh, creativity to increase making more money, earning a better living, if that is the goal. Hopefully, it's not the only goal, although, again, in modern America, very often the whole mark of a person's morality and worth is the size of his wallet, his bank account, uh, and his portfolio of stocks and bonds. How many toys do we own uh, that are better and more expensive than the toys owned by those around us? But, even that, that we define success in terms of economic improvement, uh, is a moral direction. So, uh, we need to talk then a little bit more about morality. Let's talk a little bit about the development of morality again in the view of Piaget. Because Piaget recognized that as we increase our ability, our cognitive ability our ability to understand life, so too we increase the probability that the way, the mode with which we make our moral judgments changes. He had, again, uh, three stages he believed existed, uh, three levels of moral development, and uh, the lower the stage, the less moral the behavior uh, implied, although I'm going to disagree with that. Uh, Because, again, all of these stages move from less to more and, therefore, from uh, a poorer moral sense to a better moral sense. The first level is we could call hedonism. The young child or the adult who still operates essentially at a moral level uh, of hedonism says, if it feels good, it must be good. And if it feels bad, it must be bad. And I should throw in here, I'm remiss in leaving out the concept of egocentrism, because the younger we are, the more we tend to be egocentric, see the world centered from our particular point of view, and have trouble to de to the viewpoint of another individual, uh, to listen to them and hear them, uh, so when we are very uh, young or very immature, and I'm recognizing that's a judgment, uh, and we operate morally on an he- egocentric hedonism, if it feels good for me, it is good. And if it feels bad for me, it must be bad. Listen to anybody who uh, is a heavy drinker or into drugs. Uh, that's, that's the way life is structured. Escape from pain. All pain is bad, totally bad, because there are no, no shades of gray uh, in, the, in the perception of the very young and the very immature. Um, if I cause pain to you, it really doesn't exist because I have no ability to really sympathize or empathize because I don't have a capacity, as it were, to throw myself from my view of the world into what your world possibly looks like it feels to you we do though inevitably in most cases develop a moral sense a set of rules a set of ideas about right and wrong at the second level it's a morality based upon authority and here again in my pessimistic view of the world is one of the causes uh, that uh, the world is in terrible shape and that is we accept the word of a higher authority whether it exists or not as a higher authority or in the case of politicians their higher moral authorities whether or not they behave according to the same moral principles uh, that uh, we're supposed to behave and take this as literally true that the authority knows best Not only the truth of things and how things work and how they uh, are, but how they should be. And we live our lives according to principles carved in stone, uh, not understood in terms of our own perceptions, our own interpretations, but merely the interpretations of authority. Too much of religion, too much of politics... Too much of the way we interact with leaders is, is, in my view, fixed and fixated at a level of, of the authority says that it, it must be right. It's the law. It must be followed. And this is a true story. You don't have to believe me, but it is a true story. Uh, a patient of mine many years ago was coming home 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning from a party, pulled up to a red light, which didn't change. 10 15 20 minutes the red light was broken he spent over an hour there because you're not supposed to go through red lights it breaks the law a cop finally came along and uh you know (laughs) took a look and asked him what's going on he said i'm waiting for the light to change and the cop now gave him permission to uh, go through the light and go home uh He admitted afterwards that he might have sat there all night uh, until somebody came along to give him permission. And that's basically how he lived his life. His mother said it, his father said it. Everybody was an authority except himself. Uh, uh, The the slavish following of the principles laid out by uh supposedly moral leaders uh is is uh, devastating i do believe devastating i think we need to live by laws i think we have to internalize right a sense of right or wrong but at the same time i think it has to be at the third level of of uh, piaget's hierarchy a morality that's based upon self-accepted principles. They may come from others, but we process them in a way that we make them our own and recognize that we are the equal ultimately, or our goal is to become equal as a human being, both as a person who can make decisions for our own life but take responsibility, for the morality of our life. Can we take advice? Yes. Can we be in dialogue with moral authorities? Yes. But not as a small child, not as the old song uh, by Bach goes, sheep may safely graze. Uh, The shepherd knows best. Yes, I understand the comfort in that. Yes, I understand how powerful that message is. But ultimately, as a psychotherapist, it is my goal and the goal of most of the people in my career that I knew who were psychotherapists with therapy in quotes, even if they never used the term, to help an individual come to their own moral judgments of right or wrong. Now, of course, this begs another issue. Uh, Hitler lived according to self-accepted principles. And those self-accepted principles were uh, that uh, he's right, everybody else is wrong. And the principle said uh, that if you were inferior to a good Aryan uh, and belong to a deficient race, you should be exterminated. The principle, I believe, uh, that I know I've tried to live by, not always successfully, or help the people in my classrooms and in my consulting room live uh, at when I functioned as a psychotherapist, uh, were well, one in which empathy existed, sympathy existed, uh, that, that there was love, there was dignity for all, justice for all. I know how old-fashioned and idealistic this sounds but I believe it to be so I believe it to be absolutely necessary um, uh, I was reading I, I was trying to find the quote from Harry Stack Sullivan and I came upon another of his quotes and discovered I've been saying the same thing for years uh, perhaps when I was a student I picked this up from Sullivan uh, Sullivan said that uh When the security and needs of another are as important uh, as our own, then love exists. And to the degree that that's not true, love doesn't exist. In the last years of my teaching, when more and more of my students were wayward, unhappy, really didn't know uh, uh, which decisions to make, family life in so many ways was breaking down, uh, this ugly rise of fundamentalist religion was taking place across with many religions, not just uh, uh, Christianity, uh, but many of my students were in a struggle uh, who came from Pakistan, from India, uh, from, uh, uh, from Asia, uh, all parts of Asia. Really fascinating. Uh, some who had gone to public school for the first time, uh, who were raised as Orthodox Jews, This struggle uh, to become a moral individual uh, and escape from some of the severe strictures that they were being raised under, which said that you don't have a right to make judgments and live your life as you wish to. Um, This this struggle, uh, I believe, is a universal struggle and ultimately one... Uh, that frees the individual. Uh, How do you know how to love? How do you know what dignity is unless you've experienced it? So I used to hear these students say, the most important thing is to love yourself. And their behavior was not exactly loving of the self. Uh, It wasn't. The desire was there. But the word was empty. Love often meant need. It meant domination. Um, I remember a discussion in the class. I don't know how we got to such a discussion. But we were talking about uh, love and and respect. And one of the young women in the class said, My boyfriend uh, wants to have oral sex. He wants me to go down on him. And I can't do it. I'm just not ready. I don't know if I'll ever be ready. But he says to me, if I loved him, I would do this. And I don't know what to say. So I asked the class, what does she say? And I got immediate responses. He's a bum. Get rid of him. I got responses. If you really love him, you'll do it. Uh, And I said, how do you know you're loved? How do you know you're loved? Is love one way or is love two ways? And this led to a lot of thinking. And this young lady said, gee, one of the things I probably could and should say is, if you love me, you wouldn't ask me to do something that I'm not ready to do.
1: I was very proud of her.
0: Because when we're bound into the view of morality as what the authority says, as what the other says, and we're stricken with guilt and shame, that we don't follow their rules which may be good for them and really bad for us but which we can't evaluate we don't experience love from them we experience domination we experience need and we don't learn what love is I think to love is a capacity that all human beings have I think to feel dignity and pride uh, I think are innate to our nature. On the other hand, I don't think they happen unless we're treated with dignity, with respect, uh, and love. And you know it when you've experienced it. The moment when if your parents really loved you, you walked into the house, the look on their face of pleasure and even joy uh, that you had joined them. That you knew at that moment you mattered. And I think good therapy, when there's a really honest, loving relationship between the the, the teacher and the student, or the therapist and the patient, or the client, uh, as a side, there's a wonderful professor, uh, researcher I had at NYU in graduate school, who tried to write a paper, uh, what would be the better word than patient, and client he didn't like, and uh, I thought about student, all kinds of words. Uh, ultimately, what I used to say is, it's the person I work with. When I'm in a classroom, I was a student. Now, uh, again, I've drifted back to patient, although I'm never happy with that word, because patient me has a context meaning that I don't particularly like in the context of my trying to uh, comfort an individual or make them experience themselves uh, as more worthwhile than they think of themselves at that moment. Uh, Eric Fromm was a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, psychologist. Ultimately, left the United States and lived in Mexico because he could not stand the uh, the war, the Vietnamese war, uh, and believed that America was on a very wrong course in its moral uh, outlook, in its moral behavior. And he, talked about, he wrote a book called The Art of Love, uh, which was different than The Art of Loving, which was an illustrated sex manual. And he talked about all the different kinds of love, well, you know, love within family, mother love, uh, brotherly love. But he said that when a therapist uh, has a real, healthy, fine, productive relationship with someone they're working with, there is something that could be called professional love. Ultimately, there's real respect uh, for the individual uh, acceptance of their needs to the degree that those needs aren't expressed in some dangerous or really destructive way, which is another topic for another time. But uh, the individual, and I've seen this in my classroom, I've experienced it with some of my teachers um, uh, in so many aspects of life. Particularly important, uh, I should do a show sometime on the importance of friendship. That when you uh, uh, love a friend, when there's a real love and acceptance there, uh, where you can say and do anything you want to do with that individual, because unless it's very destructive to you or to them, uh, it'll be accepted. And there'll be a struggle to understand it. When you feel understood, when you feel loved, uh, you ultimately, then, I think, begin to develop the skill and the motivation to give it. And psychotherapy, I think, should have that very much in its descriptive goal, rather than helping you overcome your mental disorder. I'm tired. Was 14 minutes left? I did for six hours. I did 45 minutes. That's good. Anybody want to call in? My friend uh, uh, Jim Morrison, the psychiatrist, will be away till the middle of July, so he's not calling in. And I got a nice reception to last week's show. I discovered something interesting that, uh, again, there are very few people who listen, and much fewer than that ever call in. And, again, maybe I'm in my lecture mode. I don't allow time for that, but I'm going to sit here for a few minutes and see if somebody wants to call in uh, but F, I usually get about uh, this this last show two weeks ago tonight was about sixteen hundred seventeen hundred callers does very well in the listing of, of ranking of shows on psychology and even science as a larger topic at the block talk radio um, I'm sure I'm gonna, I don't think I'm going to do a show next week. in fact, I know I'm not. It's my wife's birthday, and we're going to go out to celebrate it. Uh, So, nobody calls in, but apparently people come on later. And I guess that's how life works. We can carry around uh, and go into the past with our uh, electronic devices once they're uh, put into cyberspace, we can download them from the cloud which for the life of me I don't understand and nobody can explain to me. (laughs) Where the hell is the cloud? What is the cloud? So I'm going to wait two more minutes to see if somebody would like to call in and say nice things, bad things, ask questions, do a little debate. I think I'm going to go. I have a really nice uh, chocolate chip banana loaf. I'm going to make a uh, nice cup of tea and join my wife and watch some television. Earlier tonight, before I put on the show, we had recorded a American experience on PBS about the life of Henry Ford. Now, there was an interesting man. What an interesting, complex individual that was. Okay. Nobody wants to call? 646-716-7756. I'll be your best friend. Nah, I wouldn't be your best friend. Okay, folks, I'm ending the show. Good luck. Uh, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And good night. Good night.